All right, everyone, welcome back to the Journey Inward podcast. This is a show for men who are ready to begin an exploration of their inner landscape. Rather than discussing what's going on in the world at large, instead, we focus on what's going on in your world, the world of emotions, feelings, needs, values, goals, and desires. And as you'll discover in these episodes, your experience of the people and the world around you is really a reflection of what's going on inside of you. And my goal with this podcast is simply to bring forward new concepts and ideas that will help you to explore, understand, and cultivate a more peaceful and balanced inner state and to achieve greater success and satisfaction in your life. And today I am joined by one of my favorite people on earth, Helen Marie Humphrey. She was willing to be my first interviewee on this podcast. So thank you. Thank you so much, Helen Marie. And I'm so looking forward to this conversation because there are certain people I find in my life who I just know are really, really good at what they do, even though I've never worked with you. (laughs) And you're one of those people where you just give off this air, right? And it's not just confidence, it's also intelligence and empathy and capability and connection. Mm -hmm. And I just know that you're awesome at what you do. So I'm excited to have this opportunity to just dig in Mm -hmm. and ask you some of my most pressing questions about intimate relationships and what it takes to build healthy, connected relationships and to learn in this process and share, you know, all of the insight that you've gained over seven years of working with so many couples to improve their relationships with the people that are listening to this podcast. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's really good to be with you. And I appreciate your very kind words. Thank you so much. And I I love this topic. Love that you are talking about it. And um, love that you are specifically just passionate about starting up these kinds of conversations with men in particular. It's very relevant, but probably not, not talked about enough. So it's true and very rewarding, as I'm sure you've seen in your work as well, when uh, people dig in and they listen and they do the work and they get the results. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. That like change is really possible and um, healing is possible and growth is possible. And in my, for me, I, I get excited about that in the individual context. Yes, but most of my training and like semi-obsession is in the realm of relationship. So it's pretty special when you see people, relationships sort of on the brink of um, demise. It's not too overly dramatic to say it, that is how it is sometimes kind of going from the brink to um, like restoration and growth and something new and, and really sort of unbreakable. So, yeah. And, it, and the power of emotion is, is really tied into that. Absolutely. And we'll be digging into that today. But before I start peppering you with some of my burning questions, I'm curious to know what drew you into couples and relationship counseling work in the first place? That's such a good question. Um, I think I was interested in counseling. I didn't know about counseling I wasn't thinking about it in terms of becoming a counselor, but when I was in high school, I knew that I wanted to work with people who were hurting. And um, I just sort of had this vague thought of that's what I want to do professionally. And then I sort of forgot about it and went and got a um, 
bachelor's degree in international studies. And I've always been really interested in other people and other cultures. And um, I would say the human experience around the world. Um, and so after that degree, it, I was working at my husband's family business, which had nothing to do with <laughs> helping people in this particular way. <laughs> and I was there for a couple years and had that sort of like terrible, but also wonderful existential agitation of, I can't keep doing this job. <laughs> I need to go do something else. And so I went back to school and got a graduate degree in counseling. Um, and I specifically started in the fam couples and family track because selfishly, I wanted to learn how to kind of help my family. Um, I've sort of carried this like role of responsibility in my family ever since my mom died when I was a kid. And that this role has been to uh, just support my family, my siblings, and to kind of like get through hard times. And um, so I started out there for selfish reasons. And then I started working. So couples was like inherently a part of that tract. And I was doing an internship at the Cancer Center in Greensboro, which was relevant to me because I'm familiar with the cancer experience just because my mom had it and suffered from it and died from it. And so that was, I wanted to be there, you know, like for personal reasons. I think a lot of helpers in the helping profession are drawn to the specific things that like they, you know, have like lived through and experienced and maybe also need to heal from, right? And when I was there, I um, met a couple, they were became my clients. And looking back on it now, I'm like, wow, that was intense because I was just an intern and like how on earth were they even talking to me about their problems? But she had just received a cancer diagnosis and he, I could just see the devastation that they were experiencing in that like awful, awful moment in their life. And I could feel how remarkably important it was that they be as securely attached as possible to use sort of psychological language in order to go through this experience. And like, it was a terminal diagnosis. So they, they knew what the outcome would be. And it left such an impression on me, it made such an impression on me that it mattered a lot that they be in as sort of healed and peaceful a place as possible with one another in order for this lady to experience what in the, in the medical world they call a good death. Mm. And a good death is sort of defined in the medical vernacular as... Um, someone dying surrounded by at least one person who loves them. So to me, it felt remarkably important to be doing relationship work uh, for a, like an extreme situation like that. 
And that gave me a lot of like inspiration and motivation to really get into the relational work and not just the family counseling side of things, but the dyad, right? Like two people. Mm-hmm. And then um, it just was like a really natural fit for me to, to get more and more obsessed with the question of uh, how do you work with couples to develop secure attachment, which really is a, a very protective way to go through life like we we really need that so um yeah sorry that was a long-winded answer to your question specifically that was was good though because it sounds like you you saw in that moment you know even though it was dire for the individuals involved you saw kind of the potential value and benefit of relationships and just how important it can be to the human being to have that secure attachment in that time of need Right. And then, Absolutely. you know, to have that as kind of a vision of what people can aspire to and grow towards and benefit from right. if they do the right. work. That's right. And I, I really believe we all need it and we're all wired for attachment and we need it even if we're not in a dire moment right now. The nature of life is that it's filled with loss and that there are bright times and there are dark times and there is a lot to be gained and enjoyed in life but like the reality is that there's a lot of tragedy that also happens and so we we just all need somebody yeah <laughs> that we can reliably access you know who we know will be responsive to us who we know will be engaged with us um somebody that we have a, a secure emotional bond with yeah That's awesome. So that kind of gives us a little bit of context of what we're all working towards in terms of relationships and some of the aspirations Mm -hmm. and inspirations that we have for what our intimate relationships can grow into. Mm -hmm. And I know that for myself and my wife and our relationship, we constantly come back to the image of a three-legged stool for helping to think about our relationship. Mm -hmm. That it's not just what I want and what she needs. There's also what the relationship needs. And to kind of call that out was new to us and something that a therapist helped us to see is that it's not all just negotiation between me and her and what we want. There's also this third party that needs to be nurtured and kind of has its own routine for care and feeding. And so I'm curious, I think one of the things that you really bring to this conversation is just all of the wealth of experience that you've seen in meeting with so many couples over the years. And I'm curious to hear, you know, as you distill that down into some trends and some common denominators, what are things that you commonly see missing from relationships that are in a state of turmoil or or challenge? What's missing from what the relationship needs separate from what one or the other partners might want? Yeah, so I think what's often missing is that um, there are very, very often what happens is that we have this sort of set of attachment needs, which we know are present because the science of attachment has taught us about the fact that we all have needs for, to, to feel that we have somebody who can we can access, who's responsive and who's engaged with us. So these, there are needs for comfort, right? There are needs, um, that it's the need to know that we can rely on someone, that they're gonna value us, that they're gonna generally be there and they'll be responsive, that they care about who we are, they care about what we need. They'll show up for us in moments of joy, moments of pain. 
And so there's a lot of, there's various reasons for why our attachment needs may get neglected, ignored, or dismissed. Sometimes it's because we ourselves don't sort of adequately identify and articulate what it is that we need. That sounds like not a hard question on paper, but asking someone, what do you need is a really tough question. Like, especially when they're in heightened distress, mm. it's it can be almost impossible. I mean, you can probably think about times in your own life where you were absolutely overwhelmed, completely flooded, felt like you'd lost your compass and you did not, if somebody had asked you, what do you need? You would probably not have known <laughs> exactly beyond, beyond like I need to take a good night's rest or eat some food, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we don't always know what we're needing, nor do we always know how to ask what we're needing, but we also can get into the habit of minimizing our attachment needs for various reasons, including the fact that in many relationship experiences, whether from childhood or adulthood or a mixture of both, it's not always safe to reach for what we need or to, to ask for what we need. There's a kind of vulnerable risk inherent to that. And so sometimes because our needs have been repeatedly neglected, ignored, or dismissed, our bodies learn to kind of shut down that need and become self-sufficient to sort of handle, to deal with whatever it is alone, essentially. So your question is, what do I see as some of what's missing in relationships or what are relationships sometimes needing? And um, I hope I'm answering your question that I think I always think about this through the attachment lens, right? So like, because we are wired for connection, because we are wired to have somebody respond to us, think about this the way that attachment science does, which is in the context of small children and their mothers, right? If a baby cries, typically what's the natural response? The mother's going to come. Mom comes, right? And, and responds like something's wrong. We figure it out together. Baby is soothed. Attachment needs are met. Mm -hmm. We don't grow out of that mechanism as we become adults. There's a lot of things that thwart, that can thwart that process as we age. And we do become more independent, of course. We don't need somebody to feed us or to come running into adulthood, right? But the, the emotional need for accessibility, responsiveness, and engagement remain consistent from the cradle to the grave. And so all of that's from the attachment science. Mm -hmm. So what that also shows us is that because we're wired for connection, if something is blocking those needs from getting met, then it's very normal and also predictable that we will enter into a, a pattern of distress and, and also, also reactivity, emotional reactivity. So this is where a lot of conflict comes from in relationships is that there's underlying attachment needs that aren't being met or responded to and conflict springs up from that and i can get more specific about what that means but generally speaking trying to ask answer your question <laughs> when we aren't getting our attachment underlying needs met um that's what we need 
Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's like we have to identify what that is. And this is all the work that I do with couples is to understand, first of all, how are we getting stuck in patterns of interaction? And, and these are patterns are predictable because of what attachment science has shown us about how we typically react if our needs aren't being met from an attachment perspective. Yeah. So one of the things I hear in all of that is really kind of a need for there to be a safe space within the yes. relationship for these types of attachment needs to be explored. Absolutely. Yeah, that I really think, helps. Yeah. It sounds like there's a language, there's concepts, there's receptivity, there's going to be things that trigger us. And to be able to put these sorts of things on the table and to mm -hmm. be able to work on them both ways, you know, with both individuals, it's going to require somewhat of a safe space that we're willing to step into and get mm -hmm. some of this messy stuff kind of out on the table. Yeah, yeah, that's right. As you're talking about that, it reminds me of how from the attachment perspective, like a kid who will loudly complain to mom and dad about what they don't like or how they're angry or what they're unhappy about. And actually, in a sense, that's a well-adjusted kid. And mom and dad have done a good job making it safe enough for that kid to fully express <laughs> whatever they're feeling. It is, it's more concerning in situations where the expression is shut down and less authentic. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like if it's not safe to express oneself emotionally, then we learn not to. Right. So the same is true for adults, right? Like it needs to be safe enough for us to express what we feel and what we need, but it is also on us to be clear to try and be as clear as possible to send a clear signal about yeah. what we need. And, and those signals get um, kind of warbled right. at times as well. Well, I know for myself, I didn't get a chance to learn any of that stuff in high school or middle school right. or elementary school. So right. <laughs> that kind of begs right. the question, if this is a big part of what so many people stumble into in their relationships and where some of the conflict and the tension mm -hmm. comes from, and yet there's no real education around that. I mean, do you see that as part of the challenge is that we're all carrying some of these wounds and some of these needs and a lack of language. And then we're trying to work it out in our relationships with one another, yet we don't yeah. necessarily have the framework for being able yeah. to work it out, or we may not even know what we're trying to work out. Yeah, yeah. I think all this stuff should be taught in elementary school. I think it should be taught like at pre-parenting classes, kind of the basics of attachment and um, it's very intuitive, but at the same time, our bodies take in lessons very early on within our family, the families that we're born into, our bodies take in lessons very early on that govern the expression of emotion. So this sort of attachment, which is defined as an emotional bond, by the way, right? Like the emotional bond is a very intuitive, like our bodies know how to respond and they do know how to reach. Children know how to reach and they, and they know how to ask when they're in need. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very intuitive, but at the same time, our bodies do need the experience, corrective emotional experiences into adulthood often because maybe we weren't so much taught 
like you were saying, we don't always get those lessons in childhood. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Maybe. So if we approach that kind of that same kind of question or that same challenge in relationships from a different perspective, I know that you're a plant person and everyone can relate to the fact that plants need the right amount of sunshine and air and water and soil to be able to really thrive and blossom and turn into the best version of a plant that that plant can be. If we try to apply that same line of thinking to relationships, you know, what do you see as some of these essential ingredients that are really needed to cultivate a healthy, flourishing relationship? Vulnerability, I think, is the one thing that I could really offer up in response to that. Um, so in safe relationships, we're able to take greater risk in our vulnerability. And specifically what I mean by that is kind of opening up and sharing things that are not so easy to share, right? Where there's some risk involved, right? So for instance, um, I guess an example might be as simple as me offering an apology to my partner if I have done something that I know is wrong and that I feel ashamed about. Like offering an apology is a pretty vulnerable thing. What's the risk? The risk is that I could say, I'm taking responsibility. I did this thing. I see how it impacted you and I'm really sorry. The risk is he might agree with some part of me that perhaps believes that the thing that I did isn't really forgivable or that it might just like, you know, um, always be a mark against me, right? There's a, there's a kind of inherent risk slash trust that I have to be feeling in order to give that apology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously the other side of that coin is he needs to be able to catch that. And it's like, he, maybe he'll say, yeah, that really sucked. You know, like that really hurt me. And I'm, I'm still like frustrated by it. But ultimately the safe response would be, um, I still love you. You know, I know that isn't really who you are and let's, I don't want it to happen again, but I still love you and it's okay. I'm here. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a very simple answer, but that is the equivalent of sunlight and water on a relationship. Like we all go through, even securely attached couples experience disrepair and disconnect, mm -hmm. injury, paper cut. That could be like paper cut level. That could be like <laughs> run over with a van level, right? But what sets apart secure couples from insecurely attached couples is the ability to repair. So vulnerability is really a, a very key part of that. We have to have some humility and, and take the risk to, to share. And it's in that place, you know, it's not a hard formula. It's like share your heart and the other person respond with kindness. Mm -hmm. In that place, that's where we have success and that's where we get stronger. And that's where we also grow. Yeah. Well, I was just going to ask because so often I've noticed this in my own life. If I'm looking at something and all I can see are the risks yeah. and I yet, I can't yet see what the benefits might be. Yeah. It's very difficult to lean into something. 
yeah. when it feels like there's only downside and I haven't found the upside. Yeah, yeah, so that's right. What do you oftentimes talk about is the upside of vulnerability? Because right. like you said, I mean, there's the difficulty of saying something, not knowing how your partner is going to respond or fumbling yes, exactly. around to try and say what you're trying to say. And right. what can what do you see that people can really gain out of leaning into vulnerability? A good question. Why would we go to that effort? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why would we take that risk? Yeah, this is it's it's a really fair question. And the gains are huge. The gains are that there is relief that you feel in your body when you can take a risk and when you can send a clear signal about what you need to hear. So these are, you know, these are non-inflammatory, non-blaming kinds of uh, things that I'm suggesting people say to each other, right? Mm -hmm. In moment, particularly in conflict or like distress. And I'm sorry, I'm being a little bit vague. We could make this a way more specific, right? But when it goes well, there's palpable relief. Um, there's often a kind of clarity and peace and like reduction in that, you know, that noise in your head you get when you're really anxious or sort of ruminating about something. This happens a lot when there's like unresolved tension or conflict in a relationship that's important, right? Mm -hmm. So that noise quiets down. Um, it's also much easier for couples to find solutions to problems, like practical solutions to problems when they are feeling safer in the conversation. So being understood by one another and feeling on the same page is hugely helpful. Mm. Like it changes the experience. It also helps with fear. We also know from um, CAT scans that the brain's perception, the brain's experience of pain, like physical pain in the body changes. It actually diminishes when there is somebody present that we love and that we trust. Hmm. So even on a physical level, the experience of pain, psychological level, emotional level, the experience of pain is, is um, ameliorated when we have somebody that we are, feel connected to. So there's a lot of benefits, um, but I know in the moment, these concepts seem your our body is always going to hit the brakes most of the time going to hit the brakes and it's, it's not easy to do right so i realized that um you know the things i'm talking about here are like nice ideas on paper and in real time if there's something that's been really vulnerable for us it's inherently like by definition it's difficult to move towards that thing and to show that maybe that part of us to our spouse or our partner. And that's where the therapy that I do is really um, focused on helping people learn to do that in session so that they're not alone. And so that it's not just like, you know, I'm talking to you about how to play tennis. It's like, no, we're going to go to the tennis court, pick up the racket, hold the ball in our hand, actually go through it. Yeah. Um, well, you used the word connection, which is something I've been playing around with a lot recently. And I love the definition of intimacy is into me, you see. 
Mm -hmm. Right. And so many of us want deeper connection in our relationships, but may not necessarily know how to go about getting there. Mm -hmm. And that process of being able to open up and express and share as messy as it may be, you know, what's going on inside of me starts to create some of that safe space to be able to hear and see what's going on inside of that other person. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that that sharing and then sharing back and gaining some insight and replacing any sort of assumptions that we may have had about the other person does start to create and strengthen some of that intimacy and that connection between individuals mm -hmm. that people are so looking for. Right. And when I was doing some research a while back, I know I was talking to you at the time about intimacy and learning that there's really at least three core elements to the overall intimacy in a relationship. You can talk about intellectual intimacy and this practice of really getting into ideas and talking about things and understanding another person's views and sharing your views. Physical intimacy, which we're all pretty familiar with, right, in terms of close proximity and touching and sharing of our bodies and a shared experience there. But where it seems like so many men, especially, are probably hamstringing the relationships is on that emotional intimacy side and really being able to open up and share about what we're feeling, what we're needing, what we're wanting, kind of those desires and things mm -hmm. that are inside of us. And I was going to ask, you know, of those three types of intimacy, because um, all of them can ultimately limit the intimacy of the whole relationship, which one do you frequently see is the one that is most in need of repair with the couples that you work with? Between intellectual, emotional, emotional or physical. physical. My focus is always on the emotional. Yeah. I'm not saying that that's the end all be all or that the others aren't important, but in my experience, the other types of intimacy, it's just all interrupted if there's not enough emotional safety. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of erectile dysfunction, for example, corrects itself when couples go through an emotionally focused couples therapy. So the physical, our physical bodies do respond, like it's all interconnected, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you can also have intellectual intimacy, maybe, I don't know your thoughts on this, but it seems like you could have intellectual intimacy with somebody without risking very much. Yeah, it's kind of the that? intimacy of the cocktail party where you can go deep with someone and find some shared topics to talk about, go real deep within the yeah. first couple of hours of knowing that person. Yes. And that can be fun and enjoyable. Yeah, but there's absolutely. more than that that's required. There's, there's more than that. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily require much risk or much vulnerability. Um, okay. So that's a beautiful experience. Love that. That's a, a, like a kind of a glorious part of life, right? But also I see it as very different than uh, like the relational, like you couldn't, you couldn't have like a robust, you couldn't necessarily develop a secure attachment off of intellectual intimacy alone, right? Right. Yeah, so that's where my focus is. Does that answer your question? It does, yeah. And it actually, it kind of leads into what I'm curious about because if this sharing of ourselves and sharing of our experiences and taking vulnerable risks to share is where we oftentimes, you know, are challenged in a relationship. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of yeah. curious just from what you've seen about the men mm -hmm. and how they're showing up in that space of the relationship. Like, where is it that men are oftentimes getting hung up in their ability or mm -hmm. their willingness to, mm -hmm. to share 
And like, if you had a room full of a hundred guys that were all eager to hear the answer to this question, like, what is it, you know, about guys where we kind of get in our own way or where we may not have the skills or experiences or the confidence that we need, like what prevents us from really leaning into that space? Mm -hmm. I kind of want to ask you, what do you, <laughs> what do you, can I ask you? You can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, well, I'm curious for, yeah, for you, like if I'm, and I'm specifically curious if there's any discomfort in that realm for you, what have you noticed about um, either your discomfort or any like fear or concern or nervousness that might come up in yeah, those types I, of conversations? Sure. Yeah. I'll answer your question. And I know it's kind of ironic that I'm a guy and I'm asking you about <laughs> what, what you're seeing with the guys, but you do observe yeah. a lot. But so from my standpoint, yeah, there's a lot of fears that can come up when I'm yeah. wanting to take a risk and share what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I'm needing, mm -hmm. what sort of support mm -hmm. I need or what my desires are. Yeah. And there's some basic fears. There could be the fear of conflict that I'm going to bring some things up. We're going to get into an argument. Yes. It's going to blow up and it's going to go sideways and things are going to be worse than it was. Yeah. Maybe there's a fear of being rejected or mm -hmm. ridiculed or rebuffed. Mm -hmm right? Mm -hmm. Like those needs, those wants that you have, what do you mean that you want those things, right? So yeah. if there's a risk of being dismissed, then that's going to hurt my feelings, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to feel sad yeah. and I'm going to feel some other things about that too. Yeah. It could just generally be the fear of the unknown mm -hmm. and that I've never done this before. I don't know what's going <laughs> to happen. So it just feels scary right. or even the fear that I'm going to hurt your feelings, yeah. If I yeah. really tell you how I feel about something that's come up. And I think all of those are very, very real fears. Mm -hmm. The one that I think is a guy really hits the hardest is that there's a fear around fumbling around and trying mm -hmm. to describe something that I may not understand. Right. And I noticed that as men, like our four letter F word is fail. <laughs> right. Like <laughs> we go through right. life trying not to be a failure, trying not yeah. to look like an amateur, trying not to look inept or inadequate at doing right. something. And without any sort of like training around the language and the concepts and the tools for sharing, mm -hmm. or even really understanding the sensations, the feelings, the needs, any of these things to fumble around and to try to communicate something in front of a woman. Mm -hmm is like really, really difficult. Like we don't, we usually want to practice in private so that we can perform for women. We don't want to be yeah. looking like we're fumbling around in front of a woman. Yeah. Doubly hard if it's your partner and it's yeah. the most important woman in your life. That's you really right. don't want to look like a buffoon in front of her. Triply hard if the therapist is a woman. Now I'm in a room with two women and I'm being asked to perform on the spot to talk about like what's going on inside of me. And if I don't feel like I can do that, yeah. I feel like a lot of guys just want to clam up. It's like it's yeah. death to yeah. try to dance yeah. around with two left feet. So yeah, yeah. For me, that's what comes up is like there's a lot. It's like an ego check of yeah. I want to do this, but I also don't want to fumble around. I want to be able to do it well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really easy to just not do it at all. Yeah. Yeah. So what would it be like for you <laughs> to tell your partner, in this case, Suzanne, right? What would it be like? Could you even imagine telling her about your fear? Yeah, I can. Yeah. Okay, cool. That means but, that you have practiced this, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm at, I mean, I'm at the point of having leaned into this a lot over the mm -hmm. last year to two years that I feel comfortable talking about these things. And a big part of that gets into the work that I like to do with men, which is to help them 
raise the bar on their emotional intelligence to understand the language and the concepts and to gain some mm -hmm. skills and tools around talking about these things because if we don't understand what we are feeling and experiencing how are we supposed to share that with someone else it just it becomes very very difficult so to me like mm -hmm. step one is checking in and starting to gain a better understanding of what it is that i feel that i mm -hmm. need that i want and then I kind of need that to then be able to step forward into sharing that with someone else. And I know that That's the right. rewards like you were talking about are greater connection and greater intimacy and greater truth trust. and trust. And you hit a sweet spot where it's not hard to share anymore. Yeah. And you realize that to until you until you reach something new that is now vulnerable and does feel risky. Yeah. For <laughs> and sure. then you, and then you go through it again. Yeah. There, there is a honeymoon period of like, when you can communicate your needs, it means that your needs are more likely to get met, you know, mm -hmm. and that ends up feeling wonderful. And so there's a yeah. lot of positive reinforcement in learning. And, we, and we would call those corrective emotional experiences too, right? Like, yeah. as in like, it's not so scary anymore to show this part of me to you, right? So right. that's beautiful. Thank you for humoring <laughs> me and answering my question after asking me one. I think that's it. Like you just named all the facets that I would I typically hear from other men, right? Yeah. That that's so normal and so and 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 actually, side note, women have those same fears too. It, we just tend to women tend to present a little differently um, than men do, and. So, yes, I mean, that's that's like inherently how, you know, you're saying for you and for a lot of men that, you know, and that you work with just the sort of theoretical area of being emotionally expressive is in and of itself a vulnerable experience. So you have to be able to give your body the chance to not just theorize about it, but to go to your wife and to say, I have something I want to talk to you about. It's a bit scary though, and here's why. Like yeah. I'm worried if I show this part of me to you that you know it may change how you see me, or it may change, affect how you think about me. That I might appear less capable in your eyes, for example, and that's like a terrifying thought. Yeah, and there may be specific reassurance that you might need in that spot, right? Such as, can you just let me know it's okay? <laughs> like, even if I get the words wrong or I don't totally make sense, or I, even though I am like trying something new and it's very different um, and I may not be quote unquote good at it, can you reassure me that you still love me and like me and respect me and think of me as like a, Smart guy, you know, like yeah. it could be very simple, but when, when your partner can respond with that reassurance, which for many is, is easy to do, um, that would be an example of an attachment need getting met. Mm -hmm. We call that comfort, right? It's, it's like offer, it creates comfort. Yeah. So that's a really good example. Yeah. Well, and that's what I love about the fact that therapists exist, right? And couples counselors and therapists do exist is yeah. if there's a desire to do this, but a lack of skills and right. potentially a lack of confidence to be able to work with someone who can create a safe space and be able to not referee, but to facilitate and to foster. So sometimes things. referee. Yeah, sometimes, but probably not like pinning people down, you know, or separating no, the fighting no. parties, hopefully not. Right. But to be able to know that you can come in and not have to learn all of that stuff necessarily on your own 
know, that you yeah. can go in and someone else can help that conversation to happen. Mm-hmm. I think it's just such a wonderful opportunity yeah. for people. Yeah, we're that that's it. We're not meant to be in a vacuum with this kind of experiencing. Like it's inherently relational. So yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, the flip side of those fears is that we end up not doing things. Mm-hmm. Right. We oftentimes succumb to our fears. And so it's like yeah. how how many times have we waited for that magical moment to open up and tell our partner something? Mm-hmm. right? Because we're scared. So we're waiting for a day where they don't seem stressed out and where there's enough mm-hmm. time after dinner and where it hasn't been too good of a day that this might ruin the day. And there's like a million different reasons why we never we get cautious yeah. a conversation, or I don't know what I'm going to say if they interrupt me and what's going right. to happen if this turns into an argument, or I wanted to say three things, but then I only said one instead of all right. the three things that I wanted to say, you know, all of those things I can see delay the maturation and the healing of a relationship when we're trying to do it on our own and we're insecure and unsure and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so tough. And that's it. That's there you go. That's a, such a key point. What you said, we're trying to do it on our own. Right. So this is about undoing aloneness. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's, that's the, that's the why behind why go to all this risk <laughs> and effort is yeah. that it it does change the experience. You don't have to be so alone with whatever you're carrying. And also there's real freedom and not having to censor yourself or filter yourself so this, much with your partner, right? Yeah. And this leads to another interesting question that I'm curious to get your thoughts on, which is when we think about the relationships that we're most familiar with, like we obviously spent some time looking at our parents, whether they're still together, whether they're divorced, there's a variety of relationships that we spend a lot of time in close proximity to, you know, as children and those inform how we approach relationships. And then we've seen a lot on TV and in the movies where everything's just inherently untrue, <laughs> you know, by and large. So how important do you feel it is for people to either individually or together as a couple to do some work around envisioning what the relationship can become and to paint out a picture of what it is that they're moving towards? Because Mm -hmm. oftentimes we're starting the process dealing with the challenges and the, you know, quote unquote problems, but we may not necessarily be moving towards this desired place that we want to get to of deep intimacy and connection and trust Mm -hmm. reliability and all of those things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's really it's really important yeah yeah yes and um it is really important as a therapist my focus is is always going to be where where is the system not functioning like where is the attachment system not functioning well like where are the blocks what's happening between them what kind of pattern is happening here that's sort of keeping them disconnected uh and so in like that's going to always be the training teaches you to go there to those places that are hurting because that's where we need to attend and where we need to do the work right mm-hmm. however it's not good to ignore also the positive and, and kind of the vision and the dream and the dream of what people are hoping for, right? And that's a really important question. It's a good exercise. Like I have, I mean, how many people actually never stop to really think about this? But this question of how would you like this to be? How would you like either how would you like your relationship to feel differently than it does now? 
Or maybe it's a question of what um, would you like to experience in the future? What would you like to create in the future? Would you like to build in the future? That could be traditions and rituals that you want for your family. Like there's all kinds of facets to that question, to mm-hmm. that vision. Um, and then because I'm trained to look for the hurting places, you know, a follow-up question. I would really like to hear a thorough answer to that, right? If people have a lot to say about it, I'm like, yes, let's bring it all out into the table, Mm -hmm. paint a picture. And then the follow-up question is how confident are you at this point that you can create that? Mm -hmm. And very often people will say, oh, I'm not that confident. And then it's like, okay, great. Tell me why. And there's often a lot of fear, right? So the longings that we have are are good things that we that that provide motivation and like this is like a good natural thing for us to have, right? We want to honor those longings. They often help us like teach us some things about what we need to do today in order to get somewhere tomorrow, mm-hmm. filled with good information. But they also can reveal to us where our attachment fears currently are. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So very often the thing that we're longing for might actually feel threatened by whatever kind of challenges we're facing in our relationship currently. And so then again, that's where the call for understanding and learning how to become more vulnerable and meeting each other in kindness in that place becomes relevant and salient again Mm -hmm. so if we can do the work of vulnerability now it can be very helpful in getting to some brighter places later on yeah well and it strikes me too that that work that has to happen to continue to lean into being vulnerable which is figuring out what it is that you're feeling wanting needing and how Mm -hmm. to kind of describe that will also pay dividends and being able to describe how you want the relationship to feel mm-hmm. right That's when right. it has moved in a good direction because if all we want is less arguing and I want to feel like I can relax yeah. at home and you don't nag me like those mm-hmm. are a lot of external kind of indicators mm-hmm. as opposed to how do I want to feel when I'm around you mm-hmm. what do I want to feel in my body when I'm around you what sort of thoughts do I want coming up what sort of emotions do I want to experience when we spend time together And if we're limited in our ability to even feel what we're feeling and describe it on a day to day, it's going to be very difficult to describe how we want to feel at some future Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. So it's a, it's a really good prompt, you know, like, what are you hoping for? What's your dream? I do often get that answer from couples, you know, they'll say that I often hear this from men as well. I think I would say that um, I think I hear this more from this response more from the men than the women. But men will often say, oh, my dream, like what I want is that we could hang out and relax and like laugh and have a good time and be intimate, like physically intimate. Um, My dream is that she would look at me and be happy. You know, like uh, that's a beautiful vision. That is a beautiful vision. And so then it's like, okay, from there, let's look at what's getting in the way of that, right? Like Mm -hmm. how confident are you that that's attainable? Not so much because every time I come home, she seems to have a look on her face or she seems disappointed with me a lot or 
then here's an opportunity for vulnerability, right? And what's the experience like for you? What do you say to you about you in that place? How do you let her know that? Yeah. And we try it now, right? Like, so. Well, and as well, again, working with a professional like you, you can take those things like that look that you're experiencing on the partner's face when you come home at the end of the day, and you can probably dig into that and start to explore mm -hmm. what's really at root there, whether it's how one yeah. person is receiving it or what the other person is experiencing yeah. that's causing them to that's right. be in that space. I had a client, a client said to me the other day, he looks at me a certain way and there's an ocean of information in that look, there you, <laughs> there you go, that's it. The yeah. triggers for the attachment, uh-oh, we're in trouble, are often so subtle and so small, but it is worth it to identify because, um, you know, it can go really fast. And before you know it, when our, we're in our own self-protection where, where maybe we're not really feeling our emotion too much, maybe we're numbed out, or we flipped into anger and we're not really so aware of mm -hmm. the other sort of primary or more vulnerable emotions that we might be experiencing. Yeah. So slowing it all down is, is important. Well, that's interesting too. If she can perceive or he can perceive from just that look that there's a lot mm -hmm. there. My assumption is that there's a lot there, but I don't necessarily know what it is. I don't know if it's friendly or if it's foe. Right, yeah, which if intimacy right. is into me, you see, it kind of goes without saying that that means clearly, you know, and not <laughs> opaquely. Yeah. And you use this word earlier around understanding and been playing with that a lot recently too. And what role like understanding and misunderstanding play in the tension and the conflict that, you know, ultimately comes up in a relationship. Mm. And, you know, if I just go back and try to keep things simple, it's like when I feel understood by someone, I generally feel closer to that person. And if I consistently feel understood by that person and start to feel some real connection, like they get me and they understand mm -hmm. me. If I feel misunderstood by a person, I feel distant, right? We're just, we're not clicking. We're not on the mm -hmm. same page. And if I'm consistently misunderstood, then it feels like there's a lot of distance. Like we just, we don't necessarily get one another. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed in, in my past that when I feel misunderstood by someone, then I start to withhold right then i start to back away and now i'm actively putting more distance in that relationship rather than yeah. trying to move closer and then withholding now i'm holding more now it turns into resentment and, and there's hard feelings and then get passive aggressive and start showing up in ways that are actually not conducive to improving the relationship whatsoever mm -hmm. and i've been spending a lot of time thinking about how all of that and that dynamic you know leads to a lot of the tension and conflict and that tension and conflict can really just be an indication that we don't understand one another right now. And yeah. I think it's for all the reasons that you've been elaborating so far in this conversation that we don't feel close, we don't feel connected, we aren't sharing, we can't share, we don't feel safe sharing. But I'm curious what else you might add to kind of this experience of tension and conflict that comes up in relationships beyond maybe just, you know, simple understanding and misunderstanding. What else would I add? As like uh, common causes or common things that end up leading to or manifesting into tension and conflict between couples. Well, I think that what you're describing is most of it, actually. Okay. <laughs> that we, we, we very quickly, we kind of, there's a uh, like 
call it like a theory of appraisal. We make these appraisals, like these interpretations, right? Of maybe it's the look that my client was referring to. It's an ocean of information. Now, side note, whether the ocean of information that she's taking in is actually accurate to where he's coming from is a separate question. Mm-hmm. However, as soon as she takes that in, she's got this idea that he doesn't care. He doesn't want to hear about it. He's not going to be here for me when I'm in need. He's not accessible. He's cold. She also gets a message about who she is in his world, right? Mm. Which is usually the zinger, the real zinger. This is a lot of communication without actually communicating. Is exactly right. So you're doing a beautiful job in your description of how it goes for you. It's sort of a classic example of how we may take in, uh, we may make an appraisal or an interpretation. Yeah what it feels like in that spot. And then you do some kind of self-protective move, withdrawing, withholding. It's like, cause if you didn't do that, what could happen? You might run the risk of something bad could happen, right? Like you're doing, your body is doing that for a reason. Mm-hmm. Something tells you not safe, there's judgment here. There's pain, potential pain here. I mean, it could be all kinds of things, right? Yeah. But I think that those those are the patterns and attachment has a lot to say about these patterns um, that, I mean, it's just everywhere, James. Like this is <laughs> like, this is what, this is what people are dealing with day in, day out and all of our relationships to one degree or another. Yeah. Um, and this might be where I make a plug for, you know, emotional intelligence, at least yeah. is kind of how I define it. Cause I asked earlier, like what leads you to lean into something like vulnerability? If you see the mm-hmm. risk, but you don't necessarily see the reward. And, you know, my journey with emotions has been that negative emotions, you know, anger and sadness and disgust and shame and fear were potentially so intense. And I didn't know what to do with them that I just wanted mm-hmm. to get away from them. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, it's like, well, what would, what would be the value in getting close to those emotions? I didn't have that question answered. And so the logical thing to do was to move away from them and run away yeah. from them. You were overwhelmed. Yeah. And uncomfortable mm-hmm. and yeah. And scared about. And what- and would you say that part of that was because maybe, maybe you're referring to your parents or, you know, grandparents or something you were referring like those, that energy was coming your way, right. Yeah. Consistently coming your way. You were overwhelmed. You didn't know what to do. So there's a two-part dance here, you know, that it's also, it's there's if there's two people involved, it's also their responsibility to kind of regulate and manage their needs on the other side of this, right? So it wasn't working well for that energy to come your way, like whatever that was right. about, probably was not achieving the function of whatever that was, was probably not being um, fulfilled, right? Does that kind of make sense what I'm saying? That It, it does, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've got a, like my relationship with anger and some of you know the other right. emotions, I can see exactly why I ended up feeling the way I felt about those emotions. Mm-hmm. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah, childhood. Right, right. But I think the emotional intelligence piece, like the big aha for me was learning that emotions mean things that are yeah. quite specific, right? That mm-hmm. anger means something specific and disgust mm-hmm. means something that's specific. And so does mm-hmm. fear. And to know that there's actually a nugget, there's a gold nugget, you know, inside of that emotion, if you're willing to feel into it, to find it, 
Yeah. It really opens up why this is happening. Why mm -hmm. am I in this situation experiencing anger or fear or sadness? Because not every human being in the situation is going to experience the same emotion. So like, mm -hmm. what is it about me, my conditioning, my experience that's causing this to come up? And then to see how that connects then to needs, like, oh, certain needs are unmet. That's why I'm feeling scared. That's right. why I'm feeling shame. That's why I'm feeling these things. I don't necessarily encourage trying to run up to the head to understand the emotions, but to understand that there is kind of a clear meaning that can be mined out of emotions and to have some curiosity, I found allowed me to get much closer to my own emotions, mm -hmm. right? Because before I didn't know what was in there for me, but now that I know what can be in there, if I'm willing to do the work, it makes it much easier for me to move towards my emotions and say, what is this really all about? Right. But also with a partner. Right. So if I show up mm -hmm. and the partner's got that look and there's a sea of information in her eyes mm -hmm. and I can see that she's sad or she's cold and she's indifferent or whatever it is, mm -hmm. I can have some curiosity as well about like, well, what of that partner's needs are being unmet that is causing this to happen right. and mm -hmm. to just do that, to depersonalize it. And it may be me and it might not mm -hmm. be me. It might be something else. It might be childhood just to have mm -hmm. that curiosity allowed me to step into that vulnerable space with myself yeah. and with other people so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I knew that there was a wealth of information. There wasn't just like one thing to find. There was a wealth of information to be found yeah. in having those conversations. That's it. I love that. And I, that, I think that's right. Like the, uh, the curiosity will carry you a long way in this work, especially if you don't have confidence yet. <laughs> yeah. you don't have to have that much confidence if you just muster up some curiosity yeah. you know there's a lot that can come from that um but yeah that's right i mean emotions are just signals of information that haven't yet been understood like that's all it is right right and and when they are understood and when they're sort of allowed to that what happens is that energy naturally moves through to completion so they're just data points and that's a really good, um, and probably for a lot of men, that's a good, it's a helpful like reframe, right? That like, oh, like I can learn how to listen and I can learn how to be curious and like gather the information and understand better what I, what action is being asked of me, so to speak, yeah. from this emotional experience Yeah. And, um, and, and go from there. Yeah, and to extend that to your partner or anyone else. Yeah, for sure. I like to tell people that curiosity is the opposite of fear, right? Because fear mm -hmm. is really about moving away from something. You want to mm -hmm. turn your back to it and get distance from it. Curiosity mm -hmm. is getting close and picking it up and smelling it and touching it and, and looking yeah. at it. Yeah. And I know that guys have this inherent desire to like want to fix and understand and problem solve. And mm -hmm. we get into, you know, challenges and relationships there when we do that instead of listening. Mm -hmm. understanding kind of this this whole framework around emotions at least as a guy allows me to feel like I'm doing a little bit of problem solving <laughs> you know I'm still kind of getting yeah, that yeah. need met for being right. the investigator and figuring it out <laughs> and being a little bit analytical but within the context of a feeling experience mm -hmm. and a relation relational experience and mm -hmm. so to me that's it's been like a win-win yeah. yeah yeah that makes sense cool so I'd also like to pick your brain a little bit about what some of your favorite tools are, because there's the language, there's the concepts, there's a lot of stuff that helps individuals to talk better, but sometimes tools, you know, can just be used simply, whether it's a worksheet, whether it's a sharing exercise. 
So I'm kind of curious from your experience, are there some tools that you have found work really well either for individuals to kind of go inward and figure themselves out or for two individuals to do something together that, mm -hmm. you know, kind of have a low barrier to entry, but also a high kind of value or return and what those mm -hmm. might be. Mm -hmm. Forgive me if my answer is frustrating. I think because <laughs> my training is as an experiential therapist, we're like, we have tools, but we're going to do them in session together, right? Uh -huh. Like, <laughs> so it's the, the, as a therapist, I very rarely ever like give homework or anything because, because here's the thing, like, depending on how much distress you're in, relational distress you're in, it can feel, this is not, this is not my analogy, but I'll borrow it, uh, can feel like jumping out of an airplane and attempting to read the parachute manual as you are falling through the air, <laughs> right? So in, in high, you know, in, if we're in a lot of distress, it can be very difficult to like meaningfully engage. However, sometimes people do like to have something concrete and, can, and there you can have some success there, right? So not to throw that out entirely, but if people are asking for something concrete, I will always recommend picking up a copy of a book called Hold Me Tight by Susan Johnson. Mm -hmm. And there are activity, there's sort of like guided like worksheet type activities that are in that book, which are conversational. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's all in the direction of taking ownership for the ways that we might be getting stuck in our self-protection and inadvertently adding to patterns of conflict, but also gradually deepening our practice at expressing vulnerability and um, taking risks in vulnerability with our partner. So hold me tight is a good one. Um, I think that the, I think that I, we might've talked about this book, Living Like You Mean It by, I'll find the name. It's called Living Like You Mean It. It's a book about, it's a kind of a simple book that is all about feelings and um, emotions and what emotions are and how to engage with your emotions by Ronald J. Frederick. There you go. Mm -hmm. So that book, I, as loath as I am to like give out tools, there have been times I do have to admit, there's a couple actually that I've worked with for a couple years now. And they're, I, they're one of my favorite couples. They've had a, a high mountain to climb. Right. And it's been very difficult. <laughs> um, one of the hard parts was that without, he wasn't being resistant. He was not trying to be difficult, but like, as you've been sort of talking about or describing in this conversation, he also grew up in a home where emotion, like secure attachment was not modeled, appropriate expression of emotion was not modeled. So he's in his fifties now, right? And he's like learning how to do this at this point. He's always worked in like high stress corporate environments where nobody was showing him how to like, you know, have vulnerability or reach or anything like that. And I just said to him the other day, after like years of working with them, I'd suggest that you read this book. And it changed so much. And I thought I shouldn't be so resistant to giving people homework. So Living Like You Need It, I think, is a good, not a long book, easily accessible, easy to read, almost a manual on how to feel your feelings and how to learn what they're telling you. Yeah. 
So um, there's a couple of, of options there, but uh, I think, I almost think less is more when it comes to like interventions and tools. Yeah. Well, that's great. Cause I was going to ask you later what, if you had to pick just uh, one book to recommend to oh, people. So you, you got go. that one? Yeah. yeah. Two for one. <laughs> and I love that because it, it mirrors my own experience, right? I joke that at 39, I finally started understanding emotions yeah. a little bit better. And again, like this, this male desire to understand, to problem solve, to be able to, you know, come, come up with a solution and to share it with other people. The big aha for me after those 39 years is that I'd been missing out on like half of my lived experience in terms of yeah. not really understanding my emotions. And so yeah. all the work that I had done, which I thought was great up until that point was very intellectual and cognitive. Yeah. You know, it was all just very external and it didn't have the benefit of all the wisdom that was inside in terms of what I was feeling, needing and wanting. And that's yeah. such a clear messenger of what does and doesn't serve you, mm -hmm. you know, at levels that are deep and levels that right. might even be unconscious that ultimately like your human spirit wants to move in that direction towards health and happiness mm -hmm. and wholeness. Right. And I wasn't listening to those things. And by the same token in the work environment, I wasn't listening to other people. So mm -hmm. when people told me what their grievances were, you know, I paid attention to the words that they were using. And I wasn't paying attention to their body language or to what they were clearly experiencing or yeah. to all of the things that they weren't saying. And, you know, you can only come up with so you're not going to come up with the same quality of solutions, right? If you're only working with half of the information. That's right. Yeah. So that's to be able right. to bring this in and to complement everything that you already know how to do with this deeper level of understanding of yourself and of other mm -hmm. people, it does. Mm -hmm. Like it just blows the top off your head and you're like, what? Yeah, I completely agree. I, I completely agree. I feel some sadness rising up as you're talking about your experience, because I think it, it's reminding me of like many others that I've worked with, you know, over the years. And particularly, I'm thinking about this client that read this book and something shifted. And it's like he said, he, he, he started crying, which is a very rare sight, right? Yeah. And he was saying, um, just like the grief that he was feeling over not knowing how to relate to yeah. this part of himself. Yeah. And the sadness that he felt for his partnership that for like 20 years together, they'd been stuck in bad conflicts and he didn't know how to attune past her anger. He didn't know how to attune to what she was feeling nor did he know how to attune to himself. And despite, you know, very often, despite the lack of awareness, we still have a good heart. <laughs> yeah. And it's still impactful when we realize like we didn't know something. And so we missed out on like a repair, a repair experience. We missed out on building trust with people like that's a, you know, that's a thing to grieve, but it's also to answer your earlier question, like, why would we try to do this work? And that's what you're saying. Like, this is like the way home. Yeah. It's the way home. And it's also the way that we heal and it's the way that we grow and it's the way that we feel accepted and just like accepted, you know, like for yeah. who we are just being us it's, it's this place where performance doesn't matter so much yeah. um 
it gets yeah. into base base humanity right when we recognize how many different forces and circumstances have been at play for mm -hmm. us yeah. just as we explore explore our own stuff and then we know that that's true for our partners and for our friends and our employees and our bosses and then there's room for the compassion and the grace to come in mm -hmm. where we become less harsh and mm -hmm. it's all equally as true towards ourselves right when we can cultivate that self-compassion for mm -hmm. what we went through and where we're at mm -hmm. and the work that we need to do and have that grace then we extend it to other people and then that mm -hmm. starts to make everything so much easier because to does. your point at that point we're humans interacting with other humans over this shared mm -hmm. human experience yeah rather than trying to prop up the ego and perform and be a yeah, certain way. that's right. And that's right. And the beauty that comes with knowing how to repair, I mean, it's, yeah. it's amazing, right? Like it means that relationships aren't, in, aren't inevitably over when conflict happens. Yeah. Right? Like it's like... I like to help prepare. reframe that too. It's like tension and conflict are not necessarily bad things. And yeah. it's not an omen that the relationship's not going to work or that it's never mm -hmm. going to improve. And in fact, it's the relationships without tension and conflict that you should be scared of. <laughs> because, more worrisome ones. Yes. because that's where the yeah. truth isn't being spoken, right? Yeah. And so if you can see the tension and conflict as being an opportunity to get curious, what's going on mm -hmm. for me? What's going on for the other person? Do we have enough safe space to explore this? Mm -hmm. And if we can get to it, then we've actually kind of learned something. Mm -hmm. And if we behave differently moving forward, we're going to get different and better results. Whereas if we mm -hmm. can't do that work, then we just continue to crash into that same mm -hmm. symptomatic conflict and tension again and again and again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I love... I didn't used to love this. It used to stress me out a lot. But at this point, if a couple comes in and there's a lot of anger and a lot of like um, emotional dysregulation, distress, I get excited about it because I'm good, good. <laughs> the, there's they, their bodies still, there's still something viable here. Yeah. If I, and and sometimes the same people, you know, who knows? I'm just imagining. But if they came in like a couple years later, maybe things were so, would have been so bad that it all would have died down, and then I would be worried. Yeah. Right. If like the heart has gotten crispy and sort of crusted over, then it's so much harder, so much harder to repair and to heal. Um, but that's right. Like I love in Sue Johnson's book, Hold Me Tight. She talks about fights and conflict as being the body's protests over perceived emotional disconnection. Mm. It's normal to be angry if you're not getting a response from your partner, especially if you're in a moment of need. Yeah. That protest, that noise helps, is meant to help get some, somebody's attention, meant right. to help get a response. Um, so... And, and likewise, you know, shutting down or sort of withdrawing or numbing out are often the body's best ways at coping with overwhelm and fear of loss of relationship, et cetera, et cetera. So there's good, there's, it to me, that's a very encouraging way, like to reframe emotional distress and conflict as like, okay, hold on, it's all right. We just, this is actually a good sign. We just need to be able to slow down and understand what fears are getting triggered here and how can we how can we listen better to ourselves and to each other 
about the kind of specific reassurance and comfort and responsiveness that we may need. Yeah. And that's where if I had to make a plug for a worksheet on my end, it would be that Mm -hmm. the wheel of universal human needs. Mm -hmm. The question, what are you needing from this person in this situation to just answer that as an open-ended question, I think can be so difficult. It's really hard. Yeah. To look at a wheel and to actually have 70 or 80 different universal human needs like fairness and respect and freedom and autonomy and love and leisure and play and adventure, like to have those things laid out on a paper, I find that you can ask someone in that interaction or in that instance, if you just had to look at this and pick out a couple of needs that you felt were unmet, can you do that? And people can usually zero right into, well, I wasn't feeling respected or I didn't feel like the communication was there or this wasn't fair. And like, what a wonderful starting point for punching through kind of the felt experience into something a little bit deeper that you're needing that may be unknown and uncommunicated and unexpressed. Yeah. Yeah, it helps for sure. Yeah, to have like an external prompt. There is something about that, right? Like we it's hard to name, but if we have an external prompt, it's easier to kind of get in that channel yeah. of uh, intuition. Yeah. So we've talked about all the good things that can come out of doing this work, whether it's done with a therapist or whether it's done outside of the office. And you've also yeah. kind of talked about you know, the crusted over heart and how it can be so difficult in the places that we don't want to go. And we started with where relationships can go right at the end of life in this like really deep heartfelt connection that those individuals had with one another. It begs the question for people that are in a challenging situation right now and not with the felt experience in their relationship that they really want. What are some things that people can pay attention to that might be an indication that it's time to start doing some of this work. I mean, it's always time to do this work, right? So that's maybe a bad question to ask, but (laughs) I know so many couples, even in my circle, where the wife wants to go to therapy and the husband doesn't want to go to therapy. Mm -hmm. And we've explored, you know, some of the fears that might come up, but are you able to say, here's a couple of things that might be going on in relationships that are an indication that like, it's time. So I think a lot mm-hmm. of guys wait until it's past time, like things have to get bad enough before we take action, but for intentional and conscious about it, like what might be some things that couples can pay attention to and specifically the guy to yeah. take as a sign that what we're doing is perhaps not working for what it is that we need right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's an opportunity to read the books, to do the work, to have a conversation with a therapist mm-hmm. and to start moving forward. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if your wife is saying, can we go to therapy, there's a sign for you. It's as simple as that. That's actually pretty simple, right? But if it check yourself, though, right? If something in you says, I don't want to do that. Yeah, probably also a sign that you need to sit with whatever your resistance is about whatever good emotional reasons exist behind that resistance, right? Yeah. The other signs that come to mind are how how comfortable and able do you, how confident are you in in your ability to express yourself with your wife in general, right? So like a sign might be if you notice over the course of, let's say a day, two days, a week, that you're kind of filtering yourself or you're censoring yourself a bit or you're scanning. If you find yourself scanning, like what mood is my partner in? Mm. Is this a good time to bring up XYZ? 
if it's not a good time, what am I worried could happen? Uh, so that's a that's sort of a sign for men, I think, very often that there is opportunity for learning and growing and healing, right? So scanning, filtering, censoring, um, often if you find yourself shutting down, kind of powering down, or maybe in various ways kind of withdrawing um, from your wife, particularly in emotional conversations, that might be a moment for you to to ask yourself, do I could I use some support around this, right? Like, is this really actually what I want <laughs> for this to continuously be happening? Is this sort of in line with my integrity mm-hmm. system and how I want to be as a partner? And if not, do I maybe need some support in this spot? Because if that is happening, it's happening, guarantee, for good emotional reason. It's not just that you're lazy, right? Even though your wife might, might think <laughs> that sometimes, right? Yeah. So um, you are worthy and deserve some support in those places. Um, and then the final thing is if there are reoccurring conversations that come up between you and your wife, whether that could be about anything, it could be parenting, sex, finances, employment, it could be housing related, it could be marriage related, I mean, it could be anything, in-laws, <laughs> I mean, you know, it could be anything. If there is reoccurring conversations where you just continuously feel like it is hard to have effective conversation, it's like every time this conversation comes up, it ends badly, or I end up going to bed feeling worried or frustrated, or she ends up going to bed feeling unheard or crying or angry or whatever it is, then that is a really strong indication that there is some negative cycle happening, some pattern of interaction that is accidentally sort of pushing the two of you apart. And misperception is often a part. Fear and misperception are often at play underneath. So that's a very common reason that people come in and and it just happens to every couple. There's some iteration of that that happens to every couple and it's hard to see it when you're in it. Mm -hmm. I went to school for this stuff and I've studied it, studied it, studied it. It still happens to me and it still takes me a while to notice it sometimes. So it can just be helpful to have a third party slowing you down and kind of uh, just facilitating some of the communication in those moments. Well, I think what you shared is tremendously helpful because all of those are very relatable experiences. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure many of us have been in those experiences. And yeah. for all the reasons that we've explored in this conversation, and especially again, as a guy, if these things are happening to not perceive it as a failure, like my relationship should be perfect. We shouldn't have arguments. She shouldn't ever go to bed crying. Like the reality is reality and it is what it is, right? Yeah. And it's not because of what you specifically did or didn't do that's the cause of all of this stuff, right? right? That there's, there's things that you obviously have an opportunity to work on as does your partner, right? right. And to see yeah. the commitment of both individuals to leaning into that. <clears throat> In my mind now, that's really 
how I try to assure myself that we've got a good, <laughs> strong relationship into the future. Yeah. Right. It's not really about how good things are right now. It's about our willingness to communicate and to continue to do the work as the new That's things right. come up and pull the rug out and shake the boat, yeah. you know, and throw paint on the walls. And those things continue to come up. But I'm finding that as we navigate those and then make the repair afterwards, the relationship <laughs> feels deeper and stronger and more connected than it did before. Mm -hmm. And that gets go. me really excited because that is going to be a wonderful journey. Yeah. There's going to be health scares. People that we love are going to have accidents and die. Our parents will pass mm -hmm. away at some point. You know, God forbid anything happens to our children. But mm -hmm. to know that those intense and difficult and challenging situations and conversations can actually build the strong relationship that I desire helps me to keep everything in check. Yeah. And yeah. you can't do that without emotional awareness and engagement. Right. So this is fantastic. I think this is, you know, a wonderful place to wind this conversation down. If there's one more thing that you wanted to share, you know, with the men that are listening to this podcast, what might that one thing be? I would say that you have more emotional intuition, intelligence, and ability than you probably think that you do. And your partner knows that. <laughs> which is why she wants you to go to therapy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but in all seriousness, yeah. in all seriousness, this stuff is intuitive and you have, you're further along than you might think that you are at times. And um, this is normal human experience for everyone. And it's okay to talk about it as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Because if we don't try, we don't know. So yeah. if we never really put ourselves to the task of seeing how well we can do this. We might just assume that we can't do it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. Uh, this went exactly the way that I was hoping it would. I had a fantastic conversation with you. I got some of my most burning questions answered and I learned a boatload here as well as got two more books to add to my reading list for 2024. Awesome. So. awesome. James, thank you. Thanks for your good questions and for your curiosity. And uh, yeah, just for your, your interest in this subject, I think you're doing really awesome work and really particularly excited for all the men that you're connecting with and that you will continue to connect with. It's, it's really exciting. Awesome. Well, thank you. And if anyone wants to get in contact with you, what is the best way to, to yeah. reach out? They can email me directly, hm at connectcouplestherapy.com. And I'm always happy to email. I'm also on LinkedIn, hm Humphrey. Um, feel free to shoot me a message or, you know, email me. Awesome. And I'll put that information in the show notes as well. Awesome. So thank you again. I promise this won't be the last time I have you on the podcast. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I look you forward for, to talking again. With being generous with your time today. All right. That's it. Until next time, I hope everyone, if you're still with us, have a wonderful day and we'll talk again soon.